Hello and welcome to this the second session in the Constitution Unit's 2023 Summer Conference. The theme for the conference as a whole is the future of the Constitution and in this session we're looking particularly at devolution and the Union. My name is Alan Rennick, I'm the Deputy Director of the Constitution Unit and I'm your Chair for this session. So what are we discussing? Well, uncertainties over the UK's future territorial politics are great at the moment. The Scottish independence movement is, I think it's probably fair to say, in turmoil. There are ideas for major changes to the nature of the Union coming notably from the Welsh Government and from Labour's Brown Commission. And further devolution within England is also on the cards. The Constitution Unit is, of course, based in London, so we're particularly, though not exclusively, interested in what the UK government might do in relation to all of these things. Are reforms needed to the, the forms and practice of devolution or to the fundamental structure of the Union? And if so, how might ministers approach them? To explore these matters, we're joined by a fantastic panel. Dr. Anwen Elias is reader in politics at Aberystwyth University and an expert on territorial politics in Europe. She's also a member of the Independent Commission on the Constitutional Future of Wales, which has been established by the Welsh Government to examine reforms to the Union and to Welsh democracy. Kezia Dugdale is director of the John Smith Centre at the University of Glasgow, which seeks to promote a positive case for politics and public service through research and other activities. In a former life, Kezia was, of course, a member of the Scottish Parliament between 2011 and 2019 and the leader of the Scottish Labour Party from 2015 to 2017. And Professor Mike Kenny is Chair of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and the inaugural director of the Bennett Institute of Public Policy. He too is an expert on territorial politics in the UK and beyond and is perhaps best known for his award-winning 2014 book, The Politics of English Nationhood. Welcome uh, and Kreuzer to all of you. Uh, you might notice that I haven't yet mentioned Northern Ireland. That's not because we think it's unimportant, far from it. Rather, it's because the issues in Northern Ireland are in many ways quite distinct and we just can't do them justice alongside everything else in a single panel. We did hold a special seminar in April on the Belfast Good Friday Agreement marking its 25th anniversary and examining possible paths forward. And you can find the recording of that on our website. So uh, back to now, each of the speakers will make opening remarks of five minutes or so, after which we will have some discussion in the panel and then we'll open the floor to your questions. Questions will be gathered by Connor Kelly, whom you can also see on the screen. If you have a question that you'd like to put to the panel, please write it in the Q&A function rather than the chat. Connor will select a broad range of questions and read them out. And if you'd like to ask your question anonymously, you can indicate that when you submit your question. Let me just also note that the whole session, including the Q&A, is being recorded and will be posted online on the Constitution Unit website, our YouTube channel, and our podcast after the event. Uh, with that, let me hand over to the first speaker, who will be Anwen. Uh, Alan, uh, thank you for uh, the opportunity to join the panel. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, devolution from the perspective of, of Wales. Uh, and I think it's probably fair to say that uh, the experience of devolution in Wales has been uh, less dramatic, perhaps, than in other parts of the UK. Uh, and for that reason, 
Wales hasn't really featured very prominently in discussions about the constitutional future of the United Kingdom. Uh, since the establishment of the National Assembly for Wales in 1999, although there have been a series of reforms to the original devolution settlement, these have been uh, mostly reforms uh, discussed by and delivered through uh, negotiations between political elites and officials in Wales and Westminster. They really had very little broader implication uh, or even resonance with uh, debates elsewhere in the UK about the territorial constitution uh, and how different parts of the union relate to each other um, and are governed. Uh, in this respect, Wales has been uh, a bystander, uh, really, as uh, debates and events have, have played out elsewhere. I think that is changing. And I think it's changing in particular because of the way in which the Welsh Labour Party has positioned itself as a key player, uh, as a key thinker in um, issues to do with the future of devolution uh, and its relationship to the union. And also in trying to model a process for having a broader, more inclusive uh, discussion about the future governance of Wales and the UK. So on this first point of, of positioning on, on constitutional issues, um, I would argue that uh, amongst the political parties in the UK that are committed to the unity of the United Kingdom, I think it's from Welsh Labour that we've seen some of the most ambitious thinking in terms of how the constitutional architecture of the UK might be changed in order to keep that union together and to strengthen the relationships uh, between its component parts. Um, and the starting point for Welsh Labour, of course, is Wales's place within the Union. But from that starting point, the ideas that have been put forward have far-reaching implications for the whole of the UK. Uh, so the parties talked, for example, of uh, radical federalism based on the idea of a, a voluntary union of the four nations of the United Kingdom coming together to share sovereignty uh, in areas of key interest through a partnership of of equals. Now that kind of idea goes much further than the vision of, uh, for example, the Union of Nations that Gordon Brown set out in his recent report on the future of the UK. But then there's a second aspect as well, which I think is important in terms of how Welsh Labour have uh, proposed taking the constitutional debate forward in Wales, but again with implications more broadly. So as Alan mentioned, uh, in 2021, the Welsh Government established uh, an independent commission on the constitutional future of Wales. And that commission, uh, which has representation from the four main parties uh, in Wales, um, as well as all of us, uh, of us who, who don't have a party political affiliation. So this commission has been given the, the remit to look at a range of constitutional options for Wales within the UK, but also for Wales outside of the UK, that is an independent Wales. Now that's significant in itself that the Commission is, is looking at you know, the full range of options, um, but it's also important in the sense that the Commission was given the challenge of exploring different constitutional options by means of a national conversation with the people of Wales. And I think that's interesting because it's a, a commitment to shifting away from having debates about constitutional change that involve elites and officials, 
two involving ordinary citizens whose, whose lives are directly affected by uh, constitutional rules around who takes what decision where. And again, I think in the EU context, uh, that's significant, it's very innovative, that kind of approach hasn't been uh, tried elsewhere to thinking about uh, constitutional change. So um, Wales isn't a bystander, I don't think anymore, but is trying to lead the debate on uh, devolution and the future of the union, taking that debate to the people of Wales, but also to other parts of the UK. Now, of course, there are huge challenges here, um, not least because uh, whilst we can have these conversations in Wales, we don't have any mechanism for uh, delivering any of those changes uh, by ourselves. Nevertheless, uh, I think the fact that the debate is happening in Wales uh, is really important. Uh, and I think there are interesting things to learn there uh, about thinking more broadly about the constitutional future of the United Kingdom. And I'll stop there. And when that was great, uh, really good start. Uh, let's move straight on to Kezia. Thanks, Alan, and thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this panel um, this afternoon. In the five minutes I have to open today, I wanted to start by offering a little bit of a political overview of Scotland as I see it today, and um, offer a little bit of an insight into how that might change this side of a general election. And if I've got time, a few thoughts on what might happen in the immediate aftermath of a general election in the context of devolution in the union. And first of all, I'm going to have to slightly and politely disagree with your framing at the start there, Alan. I don't actually think the independence movement is in turmoil and um, there's no doubt that the SNP are facing significant difficulties just now and perhaps the most difficult set of circumstances they have in recent history but the the polls suggest that support for independence is still very high uh, averaging out around about 48 percent and then when you look at the party breakdowns we've had two election polls recently one yes shows a 10 percent drop in SNP support in the last six months but that's a drop from 51 percent to 41 percent and lots of political parties would envy a lead of 41 percent and separately the most recent poll had the SNP and Labour level pegging on 34 percent which obviously looks and sounds very competitive and is leading to a lot of suggestions that Labour will gain heavily in a general election. But I would again point out that's the first time that Labour have been in the 30s since I think around about 2010. So I think we need to see a few more polls before we could really bank on that um, degree of progress. That said, though, that does provide a bit of political context to how we're talking about devolution in the union in Scotland just now. And I would say the mood certainly amongst the unionist parties is that there's no great demand or appetite for significant um, further powers for the Scottish Parliament. Obviously, we have the Brown Review, and we may get into the detail of that in due course, but constitutional reform is not one of um, Keir Starmer's five missions of the next Labour government, and also it's not at the forefront of the conversation around the political debate in Scotland at the moment. The dominant issue is, of course, the cost of living crisis. The mood in the unionist parties is, is a bit deeper than that, though, and a bit more tactical. So if you look at who the prominent leaders and front bench spokespeople are in the unionist parties, they tend to come from uh, a movement of unionists that believes that ceding further powers to the Scottish Parliament will weaken the union. That's their starting point. They believe that more so than um, their desire to perhaps make the devolution settlement work better or make Britain work better than it currently does. They're also of the mindset that why would you distract um, when your um, main political opponent is making its own mistakes? Why would you move the conversation into that territory voluntarily when there is so much scrutiny on the SNP's current standing around competency? 
And also they're taking a great deal of confidence from the strategy coming from the Secretary of State around using the courts to challenge what they believe to be unpopular SNP policies, whether that be the Gender Recognition Act, the Deposit Return Scheme, or to a lesser extent, um, the embedding of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. So there is no, I, from my perspective, real hunger or, or demand um, for increased devolution at the moment. And um, moving on to why I think that might change in the near future, the, the SNP are a formidable campaigning machine. That's why they've won um, every election since the independence referendum and done so handsomely. If you presume that they will get their act together, then I think you can anticipate some quite strong dividing lines between the SNP and Labour coming to the fore in the next few months. Uh, I would point to the different stances Labour and the SNP have, for example, on immigration. The SNP are very pro-immigration and will tie it to an economic necessity within Scotland economy to have more inward um, migration. Labour, for reasons south of the border, um, have increasingly, I would argue, anti-immigration rhetoric. Equally, the SNP will argue that an independent Scotland would re-enter the European Union. Now, we don't have time to go into the details of that debate today, but that will be their high-level pitch, whereas Labour have made it very clear that they will not uh, re-enter um, the European Union. Of course, we have markedly higher support for the European Union in Scotland than we do elsewhere within the United Kingdom. And finally, the SNP will argue that they would enhance uh, social security. And I think we'll see increasingly from Labour a sentiment uh, in the opposite direction, one about um, fiscal restraint. And um, certainly that's been Rachel Reeves' um, positioning in, in the past. And I think we'll hear more of that again. So that does open up um, some new dividing lines between the two parties and it could reignite a conversation about further powers for the Scottish Parliament in the aftermath of that general election. So whatever the result, I still think you could see the SNP move to a territory where they are arguing for devolution of employment law, devolution of immigration, in particular to tackle some of these fundamental economic differences um, between uh, Scotland's needs and the rest of the United Kingdom. Just finally, as I, as I creep up to my five minutes um, of opening, I, I do think there's a way forward here to build support for greater powers um, for the Scottish Parliament. If you follow this issue closely, you'll know that um, Stephen Noon, a former advisor to the SNP, is doing a lot of work trying to bring like-minded um, people together. I'm loosely involved in the, in the outskirts of that work. And I think the way to do this is to start asking some fundamental questions about what Scotland needs, what Scotland's big challenges are in the future and how powers might be used to meet those challenges. I can give you two examples of that just very quickly. The first one is, is housing. I'm very involved in housing policy. And it's very difficult at the moment for the Scottish government or indeed local authorities to build social housing for everything to do with Brexit, rising cost of materials, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a strong case to make for a devolving housing benefit that would um, incentivise the Scottish government and local authorities to see the benefits of investing in social housing in their own budget lines. So at the moment, of course, a housing benefit or a reduction in the housing benefit bill would be felt by the UK government. There's an inverse incentive there for the Scottish government to get people out of private rented sector accommodation where they're in receipt of housing benefit into social housing, where they won't directly or instantly see that benefit. And the second one, you know, looking to the recent work of the Scottish Fiscal Commission is we have a huge ageing population demographic time bomb coming down the line and we desperately need um, Scottish families to have more children to increase our working population. Uh, and I think there's an awful lot of arguments to be made around that in terms of further powers to the Scottish Parliament that could enable um, supporting families. That takes us back to employment law, of course, but, it, but it's also much deeper, much broader than that. And I'll stop there, Alan. Thank you. Fantastic.
Fantastic, Kezia. Thank you so much. And I particularly welcome anyone who questions the chair and the things that the chair might have said. Uh, quite right. Um, Mike, over to you. Thanks, Alan, and uh, thanks very much for the invitation to, to come and join this panel. Um, so just speaking in, in my introductory remarks to the, the sort of English story here in relation to devolution, I mean, obviously, England occupies a, a very different place in the conversation about the devolved union, most obviously because of its relative size, both in demographic and economic terms, but also, I, I think, because of the deep-lying assumption in British politics that, that England it, it does not need its own distinctive forms of governance or recognition, and that's an idea that has been pretty pretty consistently through um, the last couple of centuries, been challenged at times. But alongside that, that sort of condition is a recurrent debate, which has been running really for the last five to six decades in British politics about the need for an intermediate institutional layer to be built, sitting between central government and local councils. And governments led by both main parties, Labour and the Conservatives, have broadly agreed there should be such a thing, but really quite fundamentally disagreed about what that model should look like and at what geographical scale it ought to be established. And so there's been an extraordinary amount of policy churn and reversing of policies um, over that period. It's something that we I've documented in a report I wrote with Jack Newman recently. Uh, you can look at that for all the sort of gory detail about those, the sort of um, impact really of, of that policy seesawing. The current political moment is unusual, I think, in that there is, it looks like a, there's a tacit consensus between the leaderships of both main parties about the merits of the model that we've now been, we've been witnessing for some years emerging, which is broadly one of the combined authorities, usually, not always, but mostly headed by an elected metro mayor. And I think what's also underpinning that consensus is the view of both parties, which is uh, laid out in the Brown Review as well, that actually devolution in England is one of the keys to tackling problems of imbalances in the regional economy. But there are also differences and dilemmas, and we shouldn't, I think, evade those. And they will certainly, I think, play out in the in the short-term policy debate here. One is whether a question that's beginning to emerge of whether central government will retain control and oversight of those combined authorities that have the most developed deals. So you, you'd be familiar with these trailblazer deals announced for the West Midlands and Greater Manchester. And related to that is a wider debate starting up about what are the forms of governance arrangement and accountability that are going to be needed to make those more developed models work and also others as they move up the line towards that kind of deal. Now, the UK government um, published a recent accountability framework, which did address some of these issues, but also, I think, threw up some oddities. I mean, I think the idea of um, panels of local MPs overseeing uh, the work of combined authority mayors is something that ought to be debated at the very least. But I think there's a bigger issue that it hasn't yet got to grips with because it's very difficult, which is the question of whether the model, the, the embedded model of political accountability, which was developed in Greater Manchester, where whereby the mayor is held to account, as it were, by local council leaders, does that work? when it's transferred to mayoral authorities in other areas. And certainly those of you familiar with the issues in the West of England will see that you know, there are some real potential difficulties there. Another, I think, uh, emerging policy dilemma is how much variation within this model governments of either colour are going to permit. 
Um, if current plans are implemented, so the deals we've got plus those that look like they're in train, then by 2024, pretty much all of England's core cities will have what look like city regional mayors. But what's left is a large part of England, which just doesn't have that kind of practical or economic geography. Often it's more rural or is a mix of rural and peri-urban contexts. And so what kinds of governance arrangements work there is a really very difficult issue. And it's an issue that is being worked on at the moment and a variety of negotiations ongoing between central government and different coalitions of authority. And again, a big policy question here is, will Labour, as the Brown Review signals, take a more permissive approach to the emergence of different kinds of models in relation to those contexts? So changes are ongoing. The policy debate is live. This, this is in flux. But I think we can see uh, a host of more what you call Alan, more fundamental policy issues that are sort of now uh, moving to the edge of the horizon. And I think governments are almost bound to want to confront. Very quickly, those are the question of whether a degree of fiscal independence ought to be some sort of form of financial independence ought to be accorded to these authorities. And we know that historically there's been greatly resisted in parts of central government, notably the Treasury. And also it's a very also a difficult, also a difficult issue in its own right. The second question is about capability. What kinds of capacity, what sorts of skill sets are needed to really develop these forms of authority so that they can provide the kinds of good governance, foresight, uh, and sort of analytical depth to the work that is undoubtedly needed in terms of the different the challenges facing those regions. At the moment, if you compare any serious answer to that question with, with what's being provided, there is a, there's, there's almost a chasm, and that's a really big deficit. And then thirdly, what needs to change at the centre of British government? What would have to alter in order to yield the real the potential that devolution in England offers. And that I think you can understand in two ways. One is a sort of very nuts and bolts institutional question that some of you will recognize, which is about the fragmented way in which devolution policy is made, relationships are handled in different parts of Whitehall. Is there now a case for trying to brigade some of those and creating a more clearly demarcated unit or department which is responsible for devolution? And in the shorter term, what will happen to DLUC, of course, is, is a kind of immediate way into that question. And then just finally, I just finish, Alan, if I may, on because I think those are all very important and increasingly pressing issues. But I think there is almost a sort of meta level question that is so sort of blindingly obvious in many ways to those of us who live in England that we almost forget to articulate it. And I think it haunts this debate. And that really is this, whether the current system of English administration, whether there are, is that going to be made even more complicated, even more opaque, and potentially even more dysfunctional by further reforms? Because the governance of England is, is frankly in a mess, and that's partly as a result of some of the processes I mentioned earlier. It's also, I think, an unforeseen impact of devolution elsewhere. So that for citizens, for ordinary people in England, pretty basic questions about who can I hold responsible for the decisions over this particular service or over, uh, over you know, transport in my town are incredibly difficult, unusually difficult to answer compared to many other 
Western democracies. Now, those issues may not matter to most people most of the time. We know that from polling evidence. There's no great clamour for more subnational devolution. But that sense of tolerance, or maybe it's indifference, to those arrangements and to their, I would argue, increasing dysfunction, has, I think, been contingent on the assumption that central government will do the heavy lifting when it comes to delivering providing public services competently to securing economic stability, to making people feel that the current model delivers a roughly balanced sense of outcomes across the union state. Now, arguably, none of those conditions apply. We've lived to an extended period where I would argue all of those are now up for question. And so I think the question of how the English feel about their own governance, the way in which they are governed, may in that context become more of a constitutional issue. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mike. Lots of uh, detailed material to get our teeth into there. So um, we'll have some discussion uh, among the panellists now for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Then we'll turn to audience questions. We've had some audience questions already, which is great. There's definitely space still for some more. So if you do have some questions that have been brewing in your mind, now is the time to submit them. And just remember, you can do that in the Q&A function uh, at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. Um, but before we get there, um, some questions for me. So it strikes me that there are two kind of areas of discussion that come out of what you've said there. One to do with the structure of the union and the distribution of powers and uh, uh, distribution of powers between the, the constituent parts of the union. Um, and then the other is to do with uh, governance and democracy within the constituent parts of the union. So just on the first of those, um, uh, one question that very much arises for me listening to you is, is it actually possible to find a settlement for the union as a whole? that will work for all of the constituent parts of the union. So Anwen, in your remarks, you talked about radical federalism and a voluntary union where the, the nations come together in a, as a partnership of equals. Um, and I think the Independent Commission has suggested that, that that's one possible model. It's also suggested that there may be a, a slightly less kind of maximalist model around um, entrenching the de devolution structure further. Uh, but still, the Commission is of the view that we need to move further in changing the uh, the structure of the, of the union. Uh, Kezia, you've also talked about the, the need to move further powers to Scotland. Um, whereas from an English perspective, I guess the idea of a uh, a partnership of equals might seem a bit kind of surprising to many people in England. And um, many people might question whether they want to be part of a union such as that. <clears throat> so, yeah, is it possible to come up with a central settlement that will keep all of the parts of the union happy? Um, perhaps we should go to Mike first uh, and explore some of those challenges that might arise from what uh, Anwen and Kezia have talked about, and then we can go around. Mike. Um, well, there's a short answer and a long answer. I'll, I'll give you the, the short answer is um, probably not <laughs> in terms of depending on what we mean by happy, I suppose. Um, but I mean, the longer answer is that the uh, I, I think there are, you know, the, the, a lot of this depends on the sort of timescale that we're thinking about here. I mean, I, I also think it depends on whose views we care about. So I think going back to the English perspective here, one of the one of the difficulties in terms of 
constitutional design, I think, in this area is that it, it's not entirely clear what the English do want. And that is primarily because they haven't really been asked or, or engaged in the kinds of constitutional discussion discussion that certainly happened in Scotland um, in the 1980s and that Anwin's describing, you know, the project um, of the, the commission that's going on in Wales, which I, I mean, it's very interesting to hear that given you know, it makes so notable the, the absence of something like that in England. So I think, you know, one issue here is that, and, you know, arguably the same, there are similar points perhaps apply at the popular level in other parts of the union as well. There is a the degree of flux and uncertainty and also disagreement about what is the optimal solution for each of the parts um, is, is really quite marked. And I think we can't, we can't just um, ignore that. And I think sometimes it's tempting as constitution experts to reach for a perfect design and sort of hope that those disagreements and uncertainties will go away. That's one point, but, but just to come back to the timescale point, I, I, which is the longer bit, I think um, these things are processes. They're not, you know, dis get, getting towards um, forms, structures, institutional settlements, which are roughly going to work and deliver for both political elites and people something that they feel accommodates them more. And at the same time, respecting you know, the core values of the UK Union, parliamentary sovereignty, the historical manner in which the Union state has evolved and developed. There's some very strong path dependencies there. That is going to, that's not something that you can do overnight. And I think one of the interesting things here is that now that we are to a degree outside a sort of moment of crisis, certainly the 2014 Scottish referendum, then Brexit, and then COVID in a different way, which I think also stress tested the union from a different angle. Now that we're outside those moments, I think there's a very interesting question of whether we use that opportunity to engage citizens, to have a set of conversations, which actually try to think in a somewhat more dispassionate and less sort of egregiously politically motivated way or partisan way about what are the structures that are likely to work for the next 20 to 30 years. And do you have any particular process in mind there for, for how, how that kind of conversation takes place? So, um, well, I'm tempted to, to answer by saying um, have a, I, I've, I have a book that's coming out on some of these issues and it, it touches on those. So you, you'll, you'll wait for the full answer to see, uh, to, you can see it there. I mean, the short, short answer is, I mean, it, it, you know, it is difficult. I mean, one of the, uh, as you yourself know, I mean, there's been a huge set of developments in terms of citizens engagement techniques, um, using different methods to sort of um, try to sort of talk to people, um, either in the locality or at a wider scale. There's an example of, a, I think, a region-wide deliberative event, which happened a few years ago on this in Sheffield. I mean, there, there are methodologies that are available now, which I think could be very useful to combine with a sort of political level discussion. I mean, I just can't really see any way through this unless the politicians themselves both become, I think, particularly at, uh, at Westminster here, more engaged around issues relating to the union, um, more, I think, conversant with the realities of devolution. I think one of the things, the many things we learned during COVID and the inquiry, I think it's ongoing, we'll touch on this, is that the lack of understanding 
about the devolution settlements and their implications within Whitehall as well as as well as in the political level was incredibly stark and actually undoubtedly I think shaped some of the particularly early on some of the poor decision making that followed. So I think there's a sort of almost an educational project that needs to happen. Um, we need to find I think spaces outside kind of frontline political combat to do that. There are very few political incentives as you know. Uh, to do so. I happen to think that the devolution question in England is a really good way to take that forward in the English context and from there to start to sort of what engagement with questions about the union as a whole. But that's all going to take time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Anwen, the um, Independent Commission has of course been doing some of this engagement process and you talked a little bit about that in your remarks so you might want to say a bit more about that but also this first question of I presume the commission has also thought a lot about the issue of whether what is good for Wales is also going to be acceptable to the rest of the union. Yes um, so in terms of the options the commission is looking at it is looking at certainly options for fundamental reform and uh, from that perspective, whether what would work for Wales would would be not so much good for the rest of the UK, but almost you know how just how would that work? What could that look like? Uh, leaving aside um, the question of whether the other parts of the UK would would want that or not, but it is also looking at you know the, the less fundamental changes around. Um, strengthening devolution, so devolution of more powers uh, to uh, the Senate or the Welsh Parliament, and also the question of entrenchment. You know, once you have those powers, how do you protect them? How do you make sure that they are not encroached upon by um, a higher level of government? So there is that spectrum um, that we are looking at. I think it's really interesting, um, this question of, you know, could, could you ever have something that would work for all parts of the UK? Um, and it's striking, I think, uh, Casey mentioned in her comments, you know, there's just no appetite, perhaps in Scotland, for, you know, thinking about uh, major constitutional overhauls. Similarly in England, you know, what do the English people want? They don't know, they haven't been asked. Well, let's be clear, you know, people in Wales are not clamouring for fundamental constitutional reform. You know, when these survey questions that ask you know, the most important issue for you, constitutional reform is not up there anywhere uh, close to the top of that list. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thinking about these questions um, because constitutional frameworks um, inform the kinds of um, you know, uh, uh, specific policy making that does impact on the things that matter to people around cost of living, around health, around education. These are uh, policy issues that are decided on in constitutional contexts. So in that respect, um, I think it is important that we ask the bigger questions, even if people don't think they're important. And our experience as a commission has been that, um, you know, in, in trying to go out and talk to ordinary citizens about these questions, um, if you take the time to do that and to do that in a way which is understandable and engaging, people have views on these things. Uh, and they want to talk about them. Um, so just because these are not uh, issues that people want 
necessarily to think about. It doesn't mean that they're not important or that they shouldn't have the chance to talk about them. And I think that brings me back to um, what Mike was saying about, you know, the political um, interest and will here to talk about these bigger constitutional issues because they are very difficult um, and challenging and um, absolutely they would take up a lot of time and possibly a lot of political capital. So I understand why parties maybe don't want to embrace these, these big issues, but for me they really are fundamental to the way in which the union works, the way in which devolution works, um, and the way in which the, that, that territorial constitution does impact on the on the you know the daily lives of people and these issues that really are important. So um, there's a there's a dilemma there between you know want, not wanting to talk about these things because they're difficult, and yet uh, we really should talk about these things and the kinds of processes there that Mike was talking about. Somehow having a kind of conversation, I think, is is the way to do that. There are different international experiences of how to do that, but also what doesn't work um, that could be learnt on, but it does need political will. And I'm afraid that that is where I think this falls down because I don't see much of an appetite for that um, amongst the uh, UK political parties. Hmm. Kezia, what's your thinking? So I, so I agree with much, if not all, of what um, Anwin's just said. And let me start by saying, look, I, I get they're not talking about asymmetric federalism in the pubs, like if only they were. And, but that's not really the conversation that we're, we're trying to have. I think people are talking about how you fundamentally eradicate child poverty, how you deliver economic security and, uh, you know, whatever the question is, the, the, the means to the end is actually via um, a rewiring of Britain and, and how it works. Um, I heard Anwen say, you know, she's for a form of radical um, federalism. Me too. I bet we've got slightly different versions of what that looks like. And that's the problem, is it not? Because it's the, it's the Heinz constitutional question. There are 57 varieties of, of, of federalism or Devo Max. So I don't think you can get 100% of people onto the same page, but I do think you can get 65 to 85% of people um, celebrating or uniting around a common set of values and, and, and solutions. And I think in Scotland, that 65 to 85% of people could come from people who traditionally support Labour, the SNP and the Conservative Party. I do think there is will there. Then you get to the nuts and bolts of how do you actually make that happen? And Anwin's right to, to focus on that element of it. And the political will um, is the key part to this equation because, you know, if you were to organise a summit tomorrow on enhanced powers for the Scottish Parliament, um, the only way you would get the SNP in the room on that front is if you refused to um, ignore, sorry, you would only get the SNP in the room there if a second independence referendum was on the table. And you would only get the Conservatives there if a second independence referendum was not on the table, right? So th there are impasses here um, that I don't have immediate answers to, but you could find answers to through a process um, of, of deliberation. I think that only comes after a general election, though. I, I think the idea that we can have nuanced, clever, sophisticated conversations about this at um, any point between now and a general election uh, next October is really for the birds. And why do you think it is that the approach of Scottish unionists and indeed Northern Irish unionists and Westminster-based unionists is, is 
very different from the approach of unionists in Wales. So uh, as Anwen was talking about, Welsh Labour is very keen to talk about the union and, and possible restructuring of the union, whereas all other unionists in all other parts of the UK are desperate not to talk about the union and think that talking about the union is a way of talking about the disbandment of, disbanding of the union. I mean, is it just that in Wales, the independence cause is is a is lower in the polls still, and therefore it seems like a more distant prospect. So it's easier to kind of take that risk, whereas in in Scotland it's harder to take the risk. Or or is there something else going on? Could could Scottish unionists take a different approach from the one they take? They could, but they're certainly not going to gamble on it this side of a general election. So, so I don't think it's any more complicated than, um. You know, if, if support for independence is at 48%, um, the SNP can bank on getting 40% of that, at least in any electoral context, by talking about independence. The Conservatives' recent electoral success in Scotland, which may have peaked and be falling back, is not based on their domestic policy platform. It's based on their unionism. So they will be very solidly against the second independence referendum in any form, countenancing it in any way. And in fact, because of what they've done recently around taking the Scottish Parliament to court over the issues that I mentioned earlier, the muscular unionism is very much the fore and they're drawing a lot of confidence from that. That, that leaves you with Labour, whose electoral challenge right now is to garner votes from people who voted both yes and no. So they can appeal to SNP voters by talking about further devolution, but the risk in doing that is that they lose uh, no voters who don't want any further um, kind of gift to be given to the Scottish Parliament because of my opening remarks earlier, which is that to do so is to be seen as ceding power to the nationalists rather than about fundamentally addressing the question of what is in the best interest of making devolution work across the whole of the four nations of the United Kingdom. So interesting, so interesting. We'll go to questions from the audience in just a few minutes, but one final question from me before we do so. So we've been talking about kind of big reforms uh, to the structure of the union as a whole. And one of the themes of this conference is that the UK constitution has been kind of in the wars a bit over the last few years for one reason and another. And we're keen to think about are there kind of e easy wins, easy things that, that those in power could do uh, in order to um, help restore the constitution a little bit in various different ways. Could I ask each of you, what would you say in this terrain that we've been talking about here? What kinds of easy wins might you highlight? Um, Kezia, you've, you've seen politics from, from the other side. Uh, what would you highlight? Can I give you an example of um, devolution from Scottish government to local authorities? Does that, does mm. that fit? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so one one quick win from my perspective, um, if I were advising and making myself special advisor to uh, First Minister Hamza Youssef, would be to scrap Skills Development Scotland uh, as a national skills agency. I think all, all the powers it has would be much better utilised a, a local authority area, if not um, for the purposes of regional economic partnerships. I've just come back from spending a couple of days in Shetland, where the Parliament in Edinburgh feels as distant to them as as London does, and they have big challenges around their skills agenda to capitalise on what's left of North Sea oil 
and gas into transition towards cleaner renewable energy they want to be able to make those powers in their own community and I think that argument applies in the northeast of Scotland just as it does around um, agriculture and, and, and rural um, industries in the border areas uh, of Scotland so a quick win for Hamza Youssef would be scrap skills development Scotland and um, devolve those powers down save 300 million pounds plus uh, of um, an arm's length quangle and a wait for job centre plus powers to come and be used alongside it when Labour win the next election and the Brown Review is enacted. Having grown up in the Highlands, I can confirm that uh, Edinburgh feels very distant. <laughs> um, and is there anything that the UK government could do, Kezia? I mean, is in its approach to the union, uh, is there anything that it could simply change? Lots, but it won't. I, I think they're they're very confident um, that the muscular unionism is, is is paying dividends for them. I can't see any change in their strategy this side of a general. And would UK Labour take a different approach after a general election? Yeah, possibly. I think we'll have to. It's a bit like um, we know that the House of Lords element of the Brown Review is is a central plank of how they talk now. But in the early days of the Labour government, it'll be incredibly difficult to prioritise and deliver. So they will have to go surely to other elements of the Brown Report um, to show some progress on that mission to rewire Britain. There's a, the audience members who were in the first session this morning on Parliament uh, heard Sangam Debonair confirming that Labour fully intends to abolish the House of Lords in its current form within the first Parliament. We will see whether that really happens. Um, Mike, what are your thoughts on quick wins? Um, Quickish wins, and I don't know how quick these could be delivered, but um, I mean, just under two headings, I suppose, at, at the UK government level. Um, and here I, I slightly disagree with Kezia, actually. I think um, I think beneath the sound and fury of, of some of what people call muscular unionism is actually a degree of, there's a mixture of concern and uncertainty about the way in which the union is handled by British government. Um, and I think that actually is something that's shared across the two main parties. Um, so a very practical thing would be to go back, dust down the Dunlop review and have a look at some of its proposals, which I think are, I don't agree with them all, but I think it's one of the most interesting, serious examinations of how the problems in the way in which the union is managed at centre of British government, it really sort of challenges some of the sort of fragmented structural uh, issues there, that the fact that there is no single place where the union is sort of thought about, where strategy is developed, where policy is formed. Uh, it also gets into some of the cultural issues, I think, that are absolutely vital here, because for all the concerns about structural questions, culture really matters. Wanting The union is about relationships and wanting the relationships to work, both from central government, but also from the other devolved administrations is absolutely key, I think, to success. Then the other bucket would be on England specifically, I think, the parties should really commit to and mean it to a deadline in terms of an end point for the emerging devolved devolution process. The government, I think, says 2030 in the levelling up white paper, which is conveniently after the current electional cycle. I think both parties really need to ensure that there is a degree of that we, we get somewhere, that we have a something that looks like a finish point for the current um, moving picture. And then I think there has to be some consideration given to establishing a body outside of government, 
semi-independent from central government, that really looks, takes the bigger picture, look at the English, the emerging geography of English devolution, because there are so many practical issues here around jurisdictions, misalignment between public service geographies and mind authorities. We really need somebody to take a sort of hard look at some of this and to do it sooner rather than later. Very good, thank you. Anwen? Well, a lot of the tensions around uh, how devolution works in Wales comes from uh, the relationship between uh, the Welsh Government and um, uh, the UK Government and uh, Government Departments in, in Whitehall. So I think a, a, a quick win would be uh, to implement fully and properly uh, the revised uh, uh, system of intergovernmental relations that came from the review um, uh, as uh, announced in 2022, um, to actually just implement what was set out and agreed in that proposal. Uh, that has happened in some areas with some of those uh, uh, forums and meeting. Uh, it mostly hasn't happened in many other areas. Um, and so I think, you know, the, at the very least, you, you could implement that, that way of managing intergovernmental relations as a way of establishing regular discussions between uh, the devolved government and uh, the London government around the different uh, policy areas, as well as at a higher level of, of, of discussing the big things that, that, that are policy challenges that, that, that go across um, the, the devolved uh, domains. And in between those those, those uh, intergovernmental relations, there is a similar you know, thing that you could do around relations with uh, the Welsh Government Departments and Whitehall Departments in terms of, again, looking at specific policy challenges and how those are discussed and negotiated. Um, I'm, I'm sceptical about that as, as a quick win that will ever happen because, uh, as Kezia said, I, you know, I, I just don't think there's an interest in that. And it comes back to the point made about political culture in, in Whitehall uh, and more broadly political will in um, UK governments to actually engage meaningfully with uh, the devolved institutions. Um, I would hope that that would be something that would change under a, a future UK Labour government. Um, but, but for the time being, it, it could be a short win, but unlikely, I think, I, I think to happen. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. Let's go to questions from the audience now. Connor will miraculously appear on our screens. There he is. Uh, Connor, what questions do you have for us? Yeah, lots of interesting questions coming in from the audience. Um, I think the first round, there are three, uh, one for each member of the panel. So uh, Keith Raffin, a former Welsh Member of Parliament, asks if Anwen could comment on the impact of the proposed dramatic reduction in the number of Welsh MPs from 40 to 32, and the proposed corresponding dramatic increase in the size of the Welsh, Welsh Senate. Um, David Bauman for Mike asks, uh, do you think the idea of an English parliament is dead in the water? And finally, John Newman, Newham sorry, asks Kezia, to what extent is support for Scottish independence conditioned by the possibility of rejoining the European Union? Fantastic. Thank you. Well, let's uh, simply go through those in turn. So the um... Uh, reports of the boundary commissions, as some of you will have noticed, came out at half past 11 this morning. So confirmation of the new boundaries in Wales, as well as other parts of the UK for Westminster elections. So um, 
Anwen, do you want to address Keith's question? Yeah, thank you, Keith. That's an interesting one. Um, I think it poses a challenge immediately for some of the parties around you know, who gets to stand in some of these new uh, uh, Westminster constituencies. We see a little bit of that uh, playing out already. And there are some internal, interesting internal party um, divides perhaps emerging around that. I think more broadly, I think it's a really interesting shift in terms of the relative power of these different institutions. So, you know, having less members of parliament representing Wales versus this really proposed uh, increase in the size of the Senate, uh, the expectation is that the proposal will be to increase from 60 members to 96 members. Um, and the idea there is, you know, the Welsh uh, Parliament for Senate is, is growing in terms of the competencies. Uh, it's almost also as well uh, anticipating perhaps more uh, competencies being devolved to the Welsh uh, Parliament in future. And I think it's, it's interesting in terms of this idea of shifting importance of these institutions, because, for example, in, in Welsh Labour, there has always been a tension between uh, Welsh Labour members of Parliament versus Welsh members of uh, the Welsh Parliament and the relative weight of those within the party. Um, and you might expect with the growth of the, the Senate versus the, the decline in the number of Welsh MPs that that might have a bearing on these kind of internal party um, discussions. And those kind of discussions do have a, a, a meaningful bearing on, on some of the Welsh Labour uh, you know, policy priorities. Um, so I think it's interesting that we might see that um, uh, changing of the constituencies and the size of the Senate perhaps playing through in terms of the, uh, the internal party politics there. Very good. Mike, is the prospect of an English parliament dead in the water? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think it is dead in the water. I mean, I think it's interesting to link it to the early discussion on radical federalism, because, of course, you know, one one implication potentially in some some versions of federalism of that model would be that, that England as a whole would have its own parliament. And then that's a much debated uh, issue, as you know, in constitutional discussion and, and usually the ruled out of court as something that would sort of lead to the, the dissolution of the union would, wouldn't function. I mean, Practical considerations aside, and there's been some interesting work on it, not least from the from the Constitution Unit a few years ago. I, I do think that um, in terms of what the English Parliament idea represents, or who, or who is up for it, it is interesting to think about trends here, because certainly my take on on the polling on this is that you know this, it's pretty consistent actually over the last two decades that about 20 to 25 percent of English people will get behind that idea when other options are put alongside it. So they'll express a preference for that idea. And it seems to me about, about the percentage of people who are who are fairly, who are the most um, sort of disenchanted with the way in which the union works and are most inclined to feel a sense of grievance about English position within it. Um, I think one question is whether a potential future crisis moment actually makes that idea more appealing, whether people get more engaged with it. I mean, going back to Anwin's points, which I agreed with earlier, I mean, often it is at moments of crisis that people suddenly engage in these issues. So I would not rule out that becoming uh, an option. And certainly another, were there to be another uh, referendum on, on Scotland's constitutional position, I think it is entirely possible that that might return as an idea. I think the other thing to say very briefly is that 
there was a lot of focus in the aftermath of the 2014 referendum on the English dimension of parliamentary government. And you'll recall that there was a big focus on introducing a system in the House of Commons to sort of uh, deal with legislation that only applied to England or to England and Wales. Now, that led to a very, very baroque uh, set of rules, which were deeply unloved by MPs um, from all sides of the House, and they were abolished. I think the deeper question to which that, that reform spoke about whether the English feel that they their own interests as a as a nation are always protected, uh, or their own voice um, is adequately expressed within the system of parliamentary government. I'm not sure those questions have necessarily gone away. I think they've abated, possibly in the wake of Brexit and the sense amongst many English people that, that they got their way on a constitutional issue. Or well, I suppose perhaps we wait to see whether they did fully get get their way. But I think there's a that, that's a latent question, I think, in the wake of devolution elsewhere. And it's not one that has disappeared entirely. And Kezia, the question about independence and Scottish uh, and um, EU membership. So a coarse answer would say, and if you accept that in 2014, support for independence stood at 45% and you accept that today it stands at 48%, then you can attribute 3% of the difference to um, the changing situation with regards to membership of the European Union. It's obviously a bit more uh, complex and nuanced than that, but it is worth looking at um, who the Better Together campaign um, focused on in the dying days of the 2014 referendum and what their attitudes are to Europe in order to re really explain what's going on there. In, in truth, the No campaign focused on around 400,000 Scots in 2014 who were or could be persuaded to vote yes. And again, bluntly, there were people aged 25 to 45 who lived in urban centres, who were university educated, who were centre-left when it came to social issues, but did care about their own economic security. That's why there was such focus um, on the currency, uh, the lender of last resort and pensions, etc. during the 2014 campaign. What's interesting about that segmentation in that particular group of Scots is that they were also very pro the European Union, the, the people who like to be able to jump on an easy jet flight and get to European capital very easily. They, they considered themselves to be Scottish, British and European, etc. So in the aftermath of the EU referendum, faced with the choice between Boris's little Brexit Britain and an independent Europe, um, sorry, an independent Scotland in a progressive Europe, they were erring towards the independent option. And that's why you saw a flurry in support for independence. I think that is falling back ever so slightly now. And of course, the, the difference is that um, the prospect of a Labour government uh, coming uh, is much more plausible now um, than it was then. And you've got to think that if you were to do that segmentation again, uh, a large chunk of those 400,000 Scots in the middle could be placated in their support for independence by the prospect of the difference that a Labour government could make in the early days of a new administration. That, however, takes you straight back to um, the job that Labour still needs to do to convince Scots that things will be markedly different with the Labour government across the United Kingdom than they currently are with the Conservatives. Mm. And you talked about people who voted no uh, to independence, but uh, wanted to stay in the EU. Of course, there were also people who voted yes to independence and, and wanted to leave the EU. 
Um, and presumably they have, I mean, presumably some of them have shifted away from the independence cause as a result of Brexit, which may partly explain the kind of overall stability, relative stability. So I'm not an expert on that, um, but I I, w- I wouldn't want to over egg the size of that because really those voters don't have anywhere else to go. Um, you, you, you're not going to see, you know, a tranche of um, SNP supporting um, farmers in the northeast of Scotland suddenly back UKIP, for example. Uh, there's nowhere else really for them to go. So they, they'll hold their nose and continue to lend their support to the SNP. That said, though, there is a challenge for the SNP in this in the general election when it comes to um, policies around climate change in North Sea oil and gas in particular. So um, big decisions ahead for both Labour and the SNP around things like new licences for exploration could see voters leaving Labour and the SNP to go to the Conservatives specifically in the north um, in the northeast of the country. It's completely possible that the SNP could lose seats to the Conservatives um, in the northeast of Scotland and still be the largest party after the general election, for example. Gosh, yes. Um, let's go to another round of questions from Connor. Yeah, a couple more interesting, couple few more interesting questions. Um, the first one is from Philip. Gilfus, um, and he asked a question that Michael briefly commented on earlier, but um, he asks, as we approach the quarter century mark of national UK devolution, do the respective constituents understand their purpose or does the educational process of explaining their powers, responsibilities and actual existence still continue? Um, Second, Richard Johnson asks, um, in many federal systems, central governments use their fiscal leverage to achieve national policy goals in areas that are not technically central government competencies. Should the UK government place greater conditionality on the funding it transfers to devolved governments? And finally, an anonymous question that was asked for Kezia, but possibly um, something everyone could speak about is, do you think a UK Labour government will repeal or amend the Internal Market Act? Wow. Um, some big questions there. Uh, I think all of you are free to pick up what you would like and uh, not pick up what you would like not to pick up. Um, Mike, shall we go to you first this, in this round? Sure. Let me let me just have a very quick go at the first and third there. I, I think the um, this point about the purpose of devolution and how well is devolution understood i mean just to, to answer it from a sort of in terms of uh, uk government but also perhaps not england more generally i mean i i agree with the question i still think there is a there is a big job to be done in terms of um education understanding and connection i think with devolution i mean the the the, the sort of phrase devolve and forget is often used as a way as a sort of summary of the approach of um, I suppose British government and politics to devolution. And there is there is some truth in that, but I also think actually it is a more complicated story where there has been for parts of British government a sort of almost a forced learning process. Um, and there've been bits of British government that frankly have engaged more constructively and intelligently with devolution, I think, to pick one department. DEFRA, I think, has a very different history in relation to its relations to devolved governments to some other departments. And of course, the departments are in different positions as to whether the powers they exercised are in reserved areas, like home office predominantly, or say health and social care, which is predominantly devolved elsewhere. So you've got a you've got a sort of huge asymmetry within Whitehall. And that means that there's been different, almost different learning paths here. I think that um, 
at a fairly there is a fairly basic level of a sort of uh, a lack of understanding of some of the not just the sort of more complicated legal aspects of devolution but i think a, a sort of lack of appreciation of politics and of the nature of societies in different parts of the uk and i would include parts of england outside london and the southeast and that and that's obviously those are issues that have surfaced in different ways in our political discourse since Brexit. And I think, you know, you see the manifest in policies like moving bits of Whitehall out of London. But so that, there's some quite deep questions there. And I think learning to understand devolution better is one part of actually a much bigger challenge facing central government. But I think at the popular level too, we really need Sorry, to- Sorry, can, can I just, uh, yeah. do you think more devolution within England would change that at all? Uh, so if, if, if the, or, or is the degree of devolution that's going to happen within England just, so incomparable to what's happened elsewhere that it just wouldn't really scratch the surface. I mean, change it in what way? Do you mean in terms of? It, so, so at the moment, as you said, we have to some extent devolve and forget, and we certainly have a culture in Westminster that just doesn't really think about what what's going on at, at other levels of government. Often, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, would that change if there were more devolution within England, and and such that it would then have repercussions for other parts of the union as well? I see. I mean, I mean, you know, the honest answer there is not necessarily. I mean, I as as sort of doing this research for on how central government has operated in the context of devolution in all and indeed in relation to local government and devolved government in England, looking at all of those things together, I'm struck more by the similarities in terms of the sort of relationship with and treatment of different levels of government than I am differences across different um, sort of territorial parts. So I don't think devolution in England is, is a magic bullet. However, I do think there is an opportunity here to, um, you know, partly because of geographical proximity, but also because mayors, some mayors are beginning to become pretty powerful figures in their own right politically. I think, and also I think there is an opening actually within Whitehall, a sort of degree of recognition in some places that actually the way in which central government has geared itself to deal with devolution has not been quite right. Now, some of that goes to the intergovernmental process where I very much agree with what Amwin said earlier, but some of it goes to a recognition, I think, that actually different departments have been um, pretty slow to actually comprehend the implications of devolution. So I think for different reasons, maybe English devolution is part of it, we could be moving into uh, a a more productive um, relationship there. Great, thank you. Uh, Kezia, so we've got two further questions on fiscal uh, leverage and conditionality and also on the Internal Market Act and its future. Where would you like to go? Some nice easy ones there. I just made some notes in the round on on that question set. I mean, I think it's fair to say that after 25 years, most Scots recognise the Scottish Parliament as the dominant political institution within the country, that that's cemented. Um, They don't necessarily understand, though, what it does and what it's responsible for. There's a variance there. So I would suggest that you're far more likely to find that Scots understand education policy, for example, is within the purview of the Scottish Government. Far fewer Scots would be able perhaps to explain that the Scottish Parliament is now in charge of many disability benefits, for example, or um, or there be awareness that Scots pay a higher rate of, of income tax than their English counterparts do, and that that was the direct result of a power that the Scottish Parliament got in, in recent history. So I do think it's a, a variable picture. 
Um, on the question of the Internal Market Act, I'm going for um, a Michael Kenny answer of, well, it depends, really. I think it depends on a number of different um, factors, including um, the size, if any, of uh, Labour's majority uh, after the general election and its confidence and willingness, therefore, to steam into issues that are connected to the European Union and alignment to um, EU issues more generally. I also think it depends on what the purpose of revisiting that Internal Market Act is and, and the clamour for that. So what is it that you want to change? Much of the conversation in Scotland right now around the Internal Market Act is uh, around the deposit return scheme, for example, which has become a huge kind of constitutional issue, which is fundamentally about whether you get 20 pence back or not for a plastic or glass bottle discuss um, in, in your local grocery store. It, it, it's, it's very, very it's small in the grand scheme of public policy, but it's blown up by constitutional dynamic. And the other um, depends I would throw into that mix is, of course, very soon after the next general election, we will have a Scottish Parliament election. And for the first time in a very long time, it is possible, plausible, if still a little unlikely, um, that, that Labour could be in power in both the Scottish Parliament um, and the United Kingdom. And I think that throws up a whole new dynamic uh, about devolution and how policy is done on a sort of international level um, as a result of that. So I, I, that's my my cop out um, to, to bank on three different types of depends on that last question. Fair enough. Uh, thank you very much. And Anwen, what would you like to pick up? Well, let me pick up the question about uh, conditionality um, for fiscal transfers. Um, I mean, yes, certainly you can you can imagine why that might be attractive to to a, a state level government using that kind of conditionality to achieve uh, policy uh, outcomes across across the state. That, however, I think um, would sit quite. Um, uh, problematically with kind of this idea that, uh, you know, for a party like Welsh Labour, you know, we, we want the tools, the fiscal tools to raise funds ourselves and then decide for ourselves how we spend that money. Um, so I, that idea of constitutionality is, is a tricky one. It points to, I think, um, a problem with this idea of, of radical federalism or any kind of federalism as, as, as some of these parties talk about it, in that these are still very vague ideas. They're not very well worked through um, uh, models of constitutional change. Um, and so there are a lot of these tensions between, you know, the kind of top level, this is the kind of union that we want versus what in practice that might mean and how uh, in practice that might mean like places like Wales might lose out uh, in, in terms of some of the powers that it either has at the moment or would like to have. So there's a difficulty there, uh, I think. That kind of, of conditionality might be more palatable within the federal system, provided that you have much clearer structures of shared governance, uh, where there is a, a, a clearer set of relationships um, that bring uh, the lower levels of government into discussions with uh, that federal level government in a way where they have a meaningful say over uh, and, and discussion around these kind of broader set of policy priorities. Uh, that could be a way of, of managing the tension that comes with this idea of, of wanting um, conditionality at that federal level versus a desire of, of, kind of the, the components of the federation to, to 
keep control of their own of their own resources. Um, it would be great if we could get into lots more detail on some of these detailed points, but alas, time is very short. I think we do have time maybe for one final question. I know Connor has a, a, a round of questions. Is, is there one question that you could pick out for us, Connor, uh, rather than trying to do a full round? Uh, yes, so there's one question that's been phrased um, with the Scottish context in mind, but I think it probably uh, applies to, to lots of what we've been talking about. So David Rogers asks, perhaps the biggest change we've seen in devolution in Scotland is the weakening of the Sewell Convention as the key lever in negotiations between the Scottish government and Westminster institutions. I'd be interested in the panel's view about whether this is going, sorry, where this is going, and whether, for example, the Brown proposals could take us back to the devolution settlement that the people voted for in 1997. A good question on which to end, in fact. Um, very quick final remarks from each of you. We just have a couple of minutes in total. Uh, shall we go in the order in which you... Actually, let's start with Kezia, because it, it is uh, framed in terms of Scotland. And so, so it's fair to start with Kezia, and then maybe Anwen and Mike. Kezia. So I think relationships between the Scottish and UK governments are, are, are so poor um, that it would be very difficult at the moment to, to reset relationships in such a way that you could bring civil convention back to the fore. It's not just in the context of um, the court disputes uh, I've detailed earlier, it's it, it's it's tactical and it's political um, in the view of the electoral contests that are, that are coming up. I do think it's possible um, post general election. So basically, I'm putting everything on hold, Alan, <laughs> in the hope of a more reasonable political debate until after the next general election. Very good. And when? Uh, I agree that political confidence in uh, in Sewell as a political convention has has evaporated. So uh, I don't think that that can continue to work on on that basis. Uh, how might you entrench that? Uh, I think the Gordon Brown proposals were interesting, so Sewell would become one of these uh, constitutional principles that uh, would be uh, defended by a, a revised House of Lords or uh, Assembly of the Nations and Regions, I think it would be called, uh, and that body would uh, make it more difficult to um, go against this convention. Uh, I don't think it's a foolproof way of proceeding. It kind of assumes that the interests of this new assembly would be to, to protect devolved interests, but that entirely depends on the composition of that new assembly and to what extent that assembly actually would be able to give a strong voice to, to the interests of, of, of the devolved regions of the UK, um, which is by no means a given, depends on how it's elected and so on. So, um, Sewell as a political convention, I think, uh, is is dead. How you might entrench that is more difficult, I think, to, to see. Great, thank you. And Mike, one minute. <laughs> one minute. Well, I, I I pretty much agree with Anwin. So that that's that's most of my, the rest. So the rest of my minute, I'll just say that you know, Sewell was invented in part because it was a way, I suppose, of trying to to square the circle between parliamentary sovereignty and the self-government ethos of devolution. And I think what we've learned, obviously principally in the context of Brexit, but I think outside that now as well, is that those two values don't always sit together. They do sometimes clash. And um, we've been reminded of that very vividly. So it, I think Sewell in its 
previous form is probably dead. I think entrenching it is an interesting idea. I still am not convinced that will square the circle, frankly, that Sewell was initially invented to address. Fantastic. Well, we've covered a huge amount of ground there. I feel we've raised many, many questions and maybe answered some of them, but uh, many of them I think we'll have to return to. We've talked a lot about the future of the Union, perhaps a bit less about devolution within England and, and indeed within other parts of the Union as well. Uh, so perhaps particularly these are themes that we'll want to return to in future events. Before I um, ask uh, audience members to join me in thanking the speakers a few little bits of housekeeping so the recording of this session will appear on our youtube channel and podcast feed in the coming days please do subscribe to those if you don't already or look out for information on our website or twitter if you're not already subscribed to our events mailing list you can do so and be the first to hear about our forthcoming events just follow the get involved link on the constitution units website the next session of this conference starts in just 45 minutes time at 2.30. The topic is the courts and the rule of law. And speakers include the Shadow Attorney General and Labour MP Emily Thornberry, Conservative MP Laura Farris, and the Chief Executive of Justice, uh, Fiona Rutherford. So I hope you'll be able to join us for that. Uh, the Zoom call will end in just a moment, but you will be able to join again using the same link as you used for this session uh, in order to begin uh, to join uh, that next session. Uh, so let me thank all of you in the audience for attending. And let me on your behalf thank our excellent, fantastic speakers, Anwen Elias, Kezia Dugdale and Mike Kenny, as well as Connor Kelly for fielding the questions and the team behind the scenes for making everything run so smoothly. So goodbye for now and we look forward to seeing you again very shortly. <laughs>